When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Chapter 15 of The Last of the Mohicans A Narrative of 1757 by James Fenimore Cooper This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 15 Quote, Then go we in to know his embassy, which I could with ready guess declare, before the Frenchmen speak a word of it. Unquote. From King Henry V. A few succeeding days were passed amid the privations, the uproar, and the dangers of the siege, which was vigorously pressed by a power against whose approaches Monroe possessed no competent means of resistance. It appeared as if Webb, with his army which lay slumbering on the banks of the Hudson, had utterly forgotten the strait to which his countrymen were reduced. Montcalm had filled the woods of the portage with his savages, every yell and hoop of whom rang through the British encampment, chilling the hearts of men who were already but too much disposed to magnify the danger. Not so, however, with the besieged. Animated by the words, and stimulated by the examples of their leaders, they had found their courage, and maintained their ancient reputation with a zeal that did justice to the stern character of their commander. As if satisfied with the toil of marching through the wilderness to encounter his enemy, the French general, though of approved skill, had neglected to seize the adjacent mountains, whence the besieged might have been exterminated with impunity, and which, in the more modern warfare of the country, would not have been neglected for a single hour. This sort of contempt for eminences, or rather dread of the labor of ascending them, might have been termed the besetting weakness of the warfare of the period. It originated in the simplicity of the Indian contest, in which from the nature of the combats, and the density of the forest, fortresses were rare, and artillery next to useless. The carelessness engendered by these usages descended even to the war of the Revolution, and lost the states the important fortress of Ticonderoga, opening a way for the army of Burgoyne into what was then the bosom of the country. We look back at this ignorance, or infatuation, whichever it may be called, with wonder, knowing that the neglect of an eminence, whose difficulties like those of Mount Defiance, have been so greatly exaggerated, would at the present time prove fatal to the reputation of the engineer who had planned the works at their base, or to that general whose lot it was to defend them. The tourist, the valetudinarian, or the amateur of the beauties of nature, who, in the train of his foreign hand, now rolls through the scenes we have attempted to describe, in quest of information, health, or pleasure, or floats steadily toward his object on those artificial waters, which have sprung up under the administration of a statesman, who has dared to stake his political character on the hazardous issue, is not to suppose that his ancestors traversed those hills, or struggled with the same currents with equal facility. Footnote. Evidently, the late DeWitt Clinton, who died governor of New York in 1828. End footnote. The transportation of a single heavy gun 
was often considered equal to a victory gained, if happily the difficulties of the passage had not so far separated from its necessary concomitant the ammunition, as to render it no more than a useless tube of unwieldy iron. The evils of this state of things pressed heavily on the fortunes of the resolute Scotsman, who now defended William Henry. Though his adversary neglected the hills, he had planted his batteries with judgment on the plain, and caused them to be served with vigor and skill. Against this assault, the besieged could only oppose the imperfect and hasty preparations of a fortress in the wilderness. It was on the afternoon of the fifth day of the siege, and the fourth of his own service in it, that Major Hayward profited by a parley that had just been beaten, by repairing to the ramparts of one of the water-bastions, to breathe the cool air from the lake, and to take a survey of the progress of the siege. He was alone, if the solitary sentinel who paced the mound be accepted, for the artillerist had hastened also to profit by the temporary suspension of their arduous duties. The evening was delightfully calm, and the light air from the limpid water fresh and soothing. It seemed as if, with the termination of the roar of artillery, and the plunging of shot, nature had also seized the moment to assume her mildest and most captivating form. The sun poured down his parting glory on the scene, without the oppression of those fierce rays that belong to the climate and the season. The mountains looked green and fresh and lovely, tempered with the milder light, or softened in shadow, as thin vapors floated between them and the sun. The numerous islands rested on the bosom of the hurricane, some low and sunken, as if embedded in the waters, and others appearing to hover above the element, in little hillocks of green velvet, among which the fishermen of the beleaguering army peacefully rowed their skiffs, or floated at rest on the glassy mirror in pursuit of their employment. The scene was at once animated and still. All that pertained to nature was sweet were simply grand, while those parts which depended on the temper and movements of man were lively and playful. Two little spotless flags were abroad, the one on a salient angle of the fort, and the other on the advanced battery of the besiegers. Emblems of the truth which existed, not only to the axe, but it would seem also to the enmity of the combatants. Behind these again swung heavily opening and closing in silken folds, the rival standards of England and France. A hundred gay and thoughtless young Frenchmen were drawing a net to the pebbly beach, within dangerous proximity to the sullen but silent cannon of the fort, while the eastern mountain was sending back the loud shouts and gay merriment that attended their sport. Some were rushing eagerly to enjoy the aquatic games of the lake, and others were already toiling their way up the neighboring hills with the restless curiosity of their nation. To all these sports and pursuits, those of the enemy who watched the besieged, and the besieged themselves, were, however, merely the idle though sympathizing spectators. Here and there a picket had indeed raised a song or mingled in a dance, which had drawn the dusky savages around them from their lairs in the forest. In short, Everything wore rather the appearance of a day of pleasure than of an hour stolen from the dangers and toil 
of a bloody and vindictive warfare. Duncan had stood in a musing attitude, contemplating this scene a few minutes, when his eyes were directed to the glossy in front of the sally-port already mentioned, by the sounds of approaching footsteps. He walked to an angle of the bastion, and beheld the scout advancing, under the custody of a French officer, to the body of the fort. The countenance of Hawkeye was haggard and careworn, and his air dejected, as though he felt the deepest degradation at having fallen into the power of his enemies. He was without his favorite weapon, and his arms were even bound behind him with thongs made of the skin of a deer. The arrival of flags to cover the messengers of summons had occurred so often of late that when Hayford first drew his careless glance on this group, he expected to see another of the officers of the enemy charged with a similar office. But the instant he recognized the tall person and the still sturdy though downcast features of his friend the woodsman, he started with surprise and turned to descend from the bastion into the bosom of the work. The sounds of other voices, however, caught his attention, and for a moment caused him to forget his purpose. At the inner angle of the mound he met the sisters, walking along the parapet in search, like himself, of air and relief from confinement. They had not met from that painful moment when he deserted them on the plain, only to assure their safety. He had parted with them, worn with care and jaded with fatigue. He now saw them refreshed and blooming, though timid and anxious. Under such an inducement it will cause no surprise that the young man lost sight of a time of other objects in order to address them. He was, however, anticipated by the voice of the ingenious and youthful Alice. "'Oh, you tyrant! You recreant knight! He who abandons his damsels in the fairy list!' she cried. "'Here have we been days, nay, ages, expecting you at our feet, imploring mercy and forgetfulness of your craven backsliding, or I should rather say, back-running, for verily you fled in the matter that no stricken deer, as our worthy friend the scout would say, could be equal. "'You know that Alice means our thanks and our blessings,' added the graver and more thoughtful Cora. "'In truth,' We have a little wonder why you should so rigidly absent yourself from a place where the gratitude of the daughters might receive the support of a parent's thanks. Your father himself could tell you that though absent from your presence, I have not been altogether forgetful of your safety, returned the young man. The mastery of yonder village of huts, pointing to the entrenched camp, has been keenly disputed, and he who holds it is sure to be possessed of this fort, and that which it contains. My days and nights have all been passed there since we separated, because I thought that duty called me thither. But, he added with an air of chagrin, which he endeavored, though unsuccessfully, to conceal, had I been aware that what I then believed a soldier's conduct could be so construed, shame would have added to the list of reasons." "'Hayward Duncan!' exclaimed Alice, bending forward to read his half-averted countenance, until a lock of her golden hair rested on her flushed cheek, and nearly concealed the tear that had started to her eye. "'Did I think this idle tongue of mine had pain you? I would silence it forever. Cora can say, if Cora would, 
how justly we have prized your services, and how deep—I had almost said how fervent—is our gratitude. "'And will Cora attest the truth of this?' cried Duncan, suffering the cloud to be chased from his countenance, by a smile of open pleasure. "'What says the graver sister? Will she find an excuse for the neglect of the knight in the duty of a soldier?' Cora made no immediate answer but turned her face toward the water, as if looking on the sheet of the hurricane. When she did bend her eyes on the young man, they were yet filled with an expression of anguish that at once drove every thought but that of kind solitude from his mind. "'You are not well, dearest Miss Monroe," he exclaimed. "'We have trifled while you are in suffering.' "'Tis nothing,' she answered refusing his support with feminine reserve, that I cannot see the sunny of a picture of life like this artless but ardent enthusiast, she added, laying her hand lightly but affectionately on the arm of her sister, is the penalty of experience, and perhaps the misfortune of my nature. See, she continued, as if determined to shake off infirmity in a sense of duty, look around you, Major Hayward, and tell me what a prospect it is for the daughter of a soldier whose greatest happiness is his honor and his military renown. Neither ought nor shall be tarnished by circumstances, over which he has had no control, Duncan warmly replied. But your words recall me to my own duty. I go now to your gallant father, to hear his determination in manners of the last moment of the defense. God bless you in every fortune, noble, Cora, I may and must call you. She frankly gave him her hand, though her lip quivered, and her cheeks gradually became of ashy paleness. In every fortune, I know, you will be an ornament and honor to your sex. Alice, adieu, his voice changed from admiration to tenderness. Adieu, Alice. We shall soon meet again, as conquerors, I trust, and amid rejoicings. Without waiting for an answer from either, the young man threw himself down the grassy steps of the bastion, and moving rapidly across the parade, he was quickly in the presence of their father. Monroe was pacing his narrow apartment, with a disturbed air and gigantic strides, as Duncan entered. "'You have anticipated my wishes,' "'Major Hayward,' he said, "'I was about to request this favor.' "'I am sorry to see, sir, that the messenger I so warmly recommended "'has returned in custody of the French. "'I hope there is no reason to distrust his fidelity.' "'The fidelity of the long rifle is well known to me,' returned Monroe, "'and is above suspicion, though his usual good fortune seems at last to have failed.' Montcalm has got him, and with the accursed politeness of his nation, he has sent him with a doleful tale of, knowing how I valued the fellow, he could not think of retaining him, a Jesuitical way that, Major Duncan Hayward, of telling a man of his misfortunes. But the general and his succor? Did he look to the south as he entered? "'And could ye not see them?' said the old soldier, laughing bitterly. 
Hoot, hoot! You are an impatient boy, sir, and cannot give the gentlemen leisure for their march. They are coming, then? The scout has said as much? When and by what path? For the dunces omitted to tell me this. There is a letter, it would seem, too, and the only agreeable part of the matter. For the customary attentions of your Marquis of Montcalm, I warrant me, Duncan, that he of Lothonian would buy a dozen such marquisates. But if the news of the letter were bad, the gentility of this French monsieur would certainly compel him to let us know it. He keeps the letter, then, while he releases the messenger? Aye, that does he, and all for the sake of what you call your bon ami. I would venture, if the truth was known, the fellow's grandfather taught the noble science of dancing. But what says the scout? He has eyes and ears and a tongue. What verbal report does he make? Oh, sir, he is not wanting in natural organs, and he is free to tell all that he has seen and heard. The whole amount is this. There is a fort of his majesty's on the banks of the Hudson called Edward. In honor of his gracious highness of York, you'll know, and it is well filled with armed men, as such a work should be. But was there no movement, no signs of any intention to advance to our relief? There were the morning and evening parades, and when one of the provincial loons, you'll know, Duncan, you're half a Scotsman yourself, when one of them dropped his powder over his porridge, if it touched the coals, it just burned. Then, suddenly changing his bitter and ironical manner to one more grave and thoughtful, he continued, And yet there might, and there must be, something in that letter, which it would be well to know. Our decision should be speedy, said Duncan, gladly availing himself of this change of humor to press the more important objects of their interview. I cannot conceal from you, sir, that the camp will not be much longer tenable, and, I am sorry to add, that things appear no better in the fort. More than half the guns are bursted. And how should it be otherwise? And how should it be otherwise? Some were fished from the bottom of the lake. Some have been rusting in wood since the discovery of the country. And some were never guns at all. Mere privateersmen's playthings. Do you think, sir, you can have Woolwich Warren in the midst of a wilderness, three thousand miles from Great Britain? The walls are crumbling about our ears, and provisions begin to fail us, continued Hayward, without regarding the new burst of indignation. Even the men show signs of discontent and alarm. Major Hayward, said Monroe, turning to his youthful associate with the dignity of his years, and superior rank. I should have served His Majesty for half a century, and earned these gray hairs in vain, were I ignorant of all you say, and of the pressing nature of our circumstances. Still, there is everything due to honor of the King's arms, and something to ourselves. While there is hope of succor, this fortress will I defend though it be done with pebbles, gathered on the lake shore. It is a sight of the letter, therefore, that we want. 
that we may know the intentions of the Earl of Luden, has left among us as his substitute. And can I be of service in that matter? Sir, you can. The Marquis of Montcalm has, in addition to his other civilities, invited me to a personal interview between the works and his own camp, in order, as he says, to impart some additional information. Now I think it would not be wise to show any undue solitude to meet him, and I would employ you, an officer of rank, as my substitute, for it would but ill comport with honour of Scotland to let it be said one of her gentlemen was outdone in civility by a native of any other country on earth. Without assuming the supererogatory task of entering into a discussion of the comparative merits of national courtesy, Duncan cheerfully assented to supply the place of the veteran in the approaching interview. A long and confidential communication now succeeded, during which the young men received some additional insight into his duty, from the experience and native acuteness of his commander, and then the former took his leave, as Duncan could only act as the representative of his, were of course dispersed with. The truce still existed, and with a roll and beat of the drum, and covered by a little white flag, Duncan left the sally-port within ten minutes after his instructions were ended. He was received by the French officer in advance, with the usual formalities, and immediately accompanied to a distant marquis of the renowned soldier who led the forces of France. The general of the enemy received the youthful messenger surrounded by his principal officers, and by a swarthy band of the native chiefs, who had followed him to the field with the warriors of their several tribes. Hayward paused short, when, in glancing his eyes rapidly over the dark group of the later, he beheld the malignant countenance of Maqua, regarding him with the calm but sullen attention which marked the expression of that subtle savage. A slight exclamation of surprise even burst from the lips of the young man, but instantly, recollecting his errand, and the presence in which he stood, he suppressed every appearance of emotion, and turned to the hostile leader, who had already advanced a step to receive him. The Marquis of Montcalm was, at that period of which we write, in the flower of his age, and, it may be added, in the zenith of his fortunes. But even in that enviable situation he was affable and distinguished, as much for his attention to the forms of courtesy as for that chivalrous courage which, only two short years afterwards, induced him to throw away his life on the plains of Abraham. Duncan, in turning his eyes from the malign expression of Maqua, suffered them to rest with pleasure on the smiling and polished features, and the noble military air of the French general. Monsieur, said the latter, j'ai beaucoup de plaisir à... Hayward modestly replied, Je pour Ah, je suis bien said Montcalm, taking Duncan familiarly by the arm, and leading him deep into the marquee, a little out of earshot. Tu je déteste ces pauvres-là. On s'en jamais circuler le pied en vécu. 
Ibionshu,' he continued, still speaking in French, "'though I should have been proud of receiving your commandant, "'I am very happy that he has seen proper to employ "'an officer so distinguished, and who, I am sure, "'is so amiable as yourself.' "'Duncan bowed low, pleased with the compliment, "'in spite of a most heroic determination "'to suffer no artifice to allure him "'into forgetfulness of the interest of his prince.' And Montcalm, after a pause of a moment, as if to collect his thoughts, proceeded. "'Your commandant is a brave man, and well qualified to repel my assault. Mice monsieur, is it not time to make more counsel of humanity, and less of your courage? The one has strongly characterized the hero as the other.' "'We consider the qualities as inseparable,' returned Duncan, smiling. But while we find in the vigor of your excellency every motive to stimulate the one, we can as yet see no particular call for the exercise of the other. Montcalm in his turn slightly bowed, but it was with the air of a man too practiced to remember the language of flattery. After musing a moment he added, It is possible my glasses have deceived me, and that your works resist our cannon better than I had supposed? "'You know our force?' "'Our accounts vary,' said Duncan carelessly. "'The highest, however, has not exceeded twenty thousand men.' The Frenchman bit his lip, and fastened his eyes keenly on the other, as if to read his thoughts. Then, with a readiness peculiar to himself, he continued, as if assenting to the truth of an enumeration which quite doubled his army. It is a poor compliment to the vigilance of us soldiers, Monsieur, that do what we will, we never can conceal our numbers. If it were to be done at all, one would believe it might succeed in these woods. Though you think it too soon to listen to the calls of humanity, he added, smiling archly, I may be permitted to believe that gallantry is not forgotten by one so young as yourself. The daughters of the Commandant, I learn, have passed into the fort since it was invested? It is true, Monsieur, but so far from weakening our efforts, they set us an example of courage in their own fortitude, were nothing but resolution necessary to repel so accomplished a soldier as M. de Macomb. I would gladly trust the defense of William Henry to the elder of those ladies. We have a wise ordinance in our Salique laws, which says, The crown of France shall never degrade the lance of the distaff, said Montcalm dryly, and with a little hauteur, but instantly adding, with his former frank and easy air, As all the nobler qualities are hereditary. I can easily credit you, though. As I said before, courage has its limits, and humanity must not be forgotten. I trust, Monsieur, you come authorized to treat for a surrender of the place? Has your Excellency found our defense so feeble as to believe the measure necessary? I would be sorry to have the defense protracted in such a manner as to irritate my red friends there, continued Montcalm, glancing his eyes at the group of grave and attentive Indians, without attending to the other's questions. I find it difficult, even now, to limit them to the usages of war. 
Hayward was silent, for a painful recollection of the dangers he had so recently escaped came over his mind, and recalled the images of those defenseless beings who had shared in all his sufferings. "'C'est monsieur là,' said Montcalm, following up the advantage which he conceived he had gained, "'are most formidable when baffled, and it is unnecessary to tell you with what difficulty they are restrained in their anger. Eh bien, monsieur, shall we speak of the terms? I fear your excellency has been deceived as to the strength of William Henry and the resources of its garrison. I have not sat down before Quebec but an earthenwork that is defended by twenty-three hundred gallant men, was the laconic reply. Our mounds are earthen, certainly, nor are they seated on the rocks of Cape Diamond. But they stand on that shore which proved so destructive to Descau and his army. There is also a powerful force within a few hours' march of us, which we account upon as part of our means. Some six or eight thousand men, returned Montcalm, with much apparent indifference, whom their leader wisely judges to be safer in their works than in the field. It was now Hayward's turn to bite his lip with vexation as the other so coolly alluded to a force which the young man knew to be overrated. Both mused a little while in silence, when Montcalm renewed the conversation in a way that showed he believed the visit of his guest was solely to propose terms of capitulation. On the other hand, Hayward began to throw sundry inducements in the way of the French general, to betray the discoveries he had made through the intercepted letter. The artifice of neither, however, seceded, and after a protracted and fruitless interview, Duncan took his leave, favorably impressed with an opinion of the courtesy and talents of the enemy's captain, but as ignorant of what he came to learn as when he arrived. Montcalm followed him as far as the entrance of the Marquis, renewing his invitations to the commandant of the fort to give him an immediate meeting in the open ground between the two armies. There they separated, and Duncan returned to the advanced post of the French, accompanied as before, whence he instantly proceeded to the fort and to the quarters of his own commander. End of chapter 15 This reading by Gary W. Sherwin of Yukon, Pennsylvania, in the autumn of 2007. Chapter 16 of The Last of the Mohicans, a narrative of 1757 by James Fenimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 16 Quote EDG Before you fight the battle, Ope this letter. Unquote. From Lear. Major Hayward found Monroe attended only by his daughters. Alice sat upon his knee, parting the gray hairs of the forehead of the old man with her delicate fingers, and whenever he affected to frown on her trifling, appeasing his assumed anger by pressing her ruby lips fondly on his wrinkled brow. Cora was seated nigh them a calm and amused looker-on, 
regarding the wayward movements of her more youthful sister, with that species of maternal fondness which characterized her love for Alice. Not only the dangers through which they had passed, but those which still impended above them, appeared to be momentarily forgotten in the soothing indulgence of such a family meeting. It seemed as if they had profited by the short truce to devote an instant to the purest and best affection, the daughters forgetting their fears, and the veteran his cares, in the security of the moment. Of this scene Duncan, who in his eagerness to report his arrival, had entered unannounced, stood many moments an unobserved and a delighted spectator. But the quick and dancing eyes of Alice soon caught a glimpse of his figure, reflected from a glass, and she sprang blushing from her father's knee, exclaiming aloud, "'Major Hayward! What of the lad?' demanded her father. "'I have sent him to crack a little with the Frenchman. Ah, sir, you are young, and you are nimble. Away with ye, ye baggage! As if there were not troubles enough for a soldier without having his camp filled with such prattling hussies as yourself. Alice laughingly followed her sister, who instantly led the way from an apartment where she perceived their presence was no longer desirable. Monroe, instead of demanding the result of the young man's mission, paced the room for a few moments, with his hands behind his back, and his head inclined toward the floor, like a man lost in thought. At length he raised his eyes, glistening with a father's fondness, and exclaimed, "'They are a pair of excellent girls, Hayward, and such as any one may boast of.' "'You are not now to learn my opinion of your daughters, Colonel Monroe.' "'True, lad, true,' interrupted the impatient old man. "'You were about opening your mind more fully on that matter the day you got in, but I did not think it becoming in an old soldier.' to be talking of nuptial blessings and wedding jokes, when the enemies of his king were likely to be unbidden guests at the feast. But I was wrong, Duncan, boy. I was wrong there, and I am now ready to hear what you have to say. Notwithstanding the pleasure your assurance gives me, dear sir, I have just now a message from Montcalm. Let the Frenchman and all his host go to the devil, sir exclaimed the hasty veteran. He is not yet master of William Henry, nor shall he ever be, provided Webb proves himself the man he should. No, sir, thank heaven we are not yet in such a strait that it can be said Monroe is too much pressed to discharge the little domestic duties of his own family. Your mother was the only child of my bosom friend, Duncan, and I'll just give you a hearing though all the knights of St. Louis were in a body at the sally-port, with the French saint at their head, crying to speak a word under favour. A pretty degree of knighthood, sir, is that which can be brought with sugar-hogsheads. And then your two-penny marquisates? The thistle is the order for dignity and antiquity. The veritable Nemo me impun la cite of chivalry. Ye had ancestors in that degree, Duncan, and they were an ornament to the nobles of Scotland. Hayward, who perceived that his superior took a malicious pleasure in exhibiting his contempt for the message of the French general, 
was fain to humor a spleen that he knew would be short-lived. He therefore replied with as much indifference as he could assume on such a subject. My request, as you know, sir, went so far as to presume the honor of being your son. Ah, boy, you found words to make yourself very plainly comprehended. But let me ask ye, sir, have you been as intelligible to the girl? Oh, my honor, no, exclaimed Duncan warmly. There would have been an abuse of a confided trust had I taken advantage of my situation for such a purpose. Your notions are those of a gentleman, Major Hayward, and well enough in their place. But Cora Monroe is a maiden too discreet, and of a mind too elevated and improved, to need the guardianship even of a father. Cora? I, Cora. We are talking of your pretensions to Miss Monroe, are we not, sir? I, I, I was not conscious of having mentioned her name, said Duncan, stammering. And to marry whom, then, did you wish my consent, Major Hayward? demanded the old soldier, erecting himself in the dignity of offended feeling. You have another, and not less lovely, child. Alice? exclaimed the father, in an astonishment equal to that with which Duncan had just repeated the name of her sister. Such was the direction of my wishes, sir. The young man waited in silence, the result of the extraordinary effect produced by a communication, which as it now appeared was so unexpected. For several minutes Monroe paced the chamber with long and rapid strides, his rigid features working convulsively and every faculty seemingly absorbed in the musings of his own mind. At length he paused directly in front of Hayward, and riveting his eyes upon those of the other, he said, with a lip that quivered violently, Duncan Hayward, I have loved you for the sake of him whose blood is in your veins. I have loved you for your own good qualities, and I have loved you because I thought you would contribute to the happiness of my child. But all this love would turn to hatred, were I assured that what I so much apprehend is true. God forbid that any act or thought of mine should lead to such a change, exclaimed the young man, whose eye never quailed under the penetrating look it encountered, without adverting to the impossibility of the other's comprehending those feelings which were hid in his own bosom. Monroe suffered himself to be appeased by the unaltered countenance he met, and with a voice sensibly softened, he continued, Ye would be my son, Duncan, and you're ignorant of the history of the man you wish to call your father? Sit ye down, young man, and I will open to you the wounds of a sacred heart, in as few words as may be suitable. By this time the message of Montcalm was as much forgotten by him who bore it as by the man for whose ears it was intended. Each drew a chair, and while the veteran communed a few moments with his own thoughts, apparently in sadness, the youth suppressed his impatience in a look and attitude of respectful attention. At length the former spoke. You know already, Major Hayward, that my family was both ancient 
and honorable, commenced the Scotsman, though it might not altogether be endowed with that amount of wealth that should correspond with its degree. I was, maybe, such an one as yourself, when I plighted my faith to Alice Graham, the only child of a neighboring laird of some estate. But the connection was disagreeable to her father, on more accounts than my poverty. I did, therefore, what an honest man should, restored the maiden her troth, and departed the country in the service of my king. I had seen many regions, and had shed much blood in different lands, before duty called me to the islands of the West Indies. There it was my lot to form a connection with one who in time became my wife, and the mother of Cora. She was the daughter of a gentleman of those isles, by a lady whose misfortune it was, if you will, said the old man proudly, to be descended remotely from that unfortunate class who are so basely enslaved to administer to the wants of a luxurious people. Ay, sir, that is a curse entailed on Scotland by her unnatural union with a foreign and trading people. But could I find a man among them who would dare to reflect on my child? He should feel the weight of a father's anger. Ha! Major Hayward, you are yourself born at the South, where these unfortunate beings are considered of a race inferior to your own. "'Tis most unfortunately true, sir," said Duncan, unable any longer to prevent his eyes from sinking to the floor in embarrassment. "'And you cast it on my child as a reproach? You scorn to mingle the blood of the Haywards with one so degraded, lovely and virtuous though she be?' fiercely demanded the jealous parent. "'Heaven protect me from a prejudice so unworthy of my reason!' returned Duncan, at the same time conscious of such a feeling, and that as deeply rooted as if it had been engrafted in his nature. The sweetness, the beauty, the witchery of your younger daughter, Colonel Monroe, might explain my motives, without imputing to me this injustice. Ye are right, sir, returned the old man, again changing his tones to those of gentleness or rather softness. The girl is the image of what her mother was at her years, and before she had become acquainted with grief. When death deprived me of my wife, I returned to Scotland, enriched by the marriage. And would you think it, Duncan? The suffering angel had remained in the heartless state of celibacy twenty long years, and that for the sake of a man who could forget her. She did more, sir. She overlooked my want of faith, and all difficulties being now removed, she took me for her husband. And became the mother of Alice, exclaimed Duncan, with an eagerness that might have proved dangerous at a moment when the thoughts of Monroe were less occupied than at present. She did indeed, said the old man, and dearly did she pay for the blessing she bestowed. But she is a saint in heaven, sir, 
and it ill becomes one whose foot rests on the grave to mourn a lot so blessed. I had her but a single year, though, a short term of happiness for one who had seen her youth fade in hopeless pining. There was something so commanding in the distress of the old man that Hayward did not dare to venture a syllable of consolation. Monroe sat utterly unconscious of the other's presence, his features exposed and working with the anguish of his regrets, while heavy tears fell from his eyes and rolled unheeded from his cheeks to the floor. At length he moved, and as if suddenly recovering his recollection, when he arose, and taking a single turn across the room, he approached his companion with an air of military grandeur and demanded, "'Have ye not, Major Hayward, some communication that I should hear from the Marquis de Malcolm?' Duncan started in his turn, and immediately commenced in an embarrassed voice the half-forgotten message. It is unnecessary to dwell upon the evasive though polite manner with which the French general had eluded every attempt of Hayward to worm from him the purport of the communication he had proposed making, or on the decided though still polished message, by which he now gave his enemy to understand that unless he chose to receive it in person, he should not receive it at all. As Monroe listened to the detail of Duncan, the excited feelings of the father gradually gave way before the obligations of his station, and when the other was done, he saw before him nothing but the veteran, swelling with the wounded feelings of a soldier. "'Ye have said enough, Major Hayward,' exclaimed the angry old man, "'enough to make a volume of commentary on French civility. Here has this gentleman invited me to a conference, and when I sent him a capable substitute, Figure all that, Duncan, though your years be but few. He answers me with a riddle. Ye may have thought less favorably of the substitute, my dear sir, and you will remember that the invitation, which he now repeats, was to the commandant of the works, and not to his second. Well, sir, is not a substitute clothed with all the power and dignity of him who grants the commission? He wishes to confer with Monroe? Faith, sir, I have much inclination to indulge the man, if it should only be to let him behold the firm countenance we maintain, in spite of his numbers and his summons. There might not be bad policy in such a stroke, young man. Duncan, who believed it of the last importance, that they should speedily come to the contents of the letter borne by the scout, gladly encouraged this idea. Without a doubt, he could gather no confidence by witnessing our indifference, he said. You never said a truer word. I could wish, sir, that he would visit the works in open day, and in the form of a storming party. That is the least failing method of proving the countenance of an enemy, and would be far preferable to the battering system he has chosen. The beauty and manliness of warfare has been much deformed, Major Hayward, by the arts of Monsieur Vauban. Our ancestors 
were far above such scientific cowardice. It may be very true, sir, but we are now obliged to repel art by art. What is your pleasure in the matter of the interview? I will meet the Frenchman, and that without fear or delay. Promptly, sir, as becomes a servant of my royal master. Go, Major Hayward, and give them a flourish of the music, and send out a messenger to let them know who is coming. We will follow with a small guard, for such respect is due to one who holds the honor of his king in keeping. And harkee, Duncan, he added in a half-whisper, though they were alone, it may be prudent to have some aid at hand, in case there should be treachery at the bottom of it all. The young man availed himself of this order to quit the apartment, and as the day was fast coming to a close, he hastened, without delay, to make the necessary arrangements. A very few minutes, only where necessary to parade a few files, and to dispatch an orderly with a flag to announce the approach of the commandant of the fort. When Duncan had done both these, he led the guard to the sally-port, near which he found his superior, ready, waiting his appearance. As soon as the usual ceremonials of a military departure were observed, the veteran and his more youthful companion left the fortress, attended by the escort. They had proceeded only a few hundred yards from the works, when the little array which attended the French general to the conference was seen issuing from a hollow way which formed the bed of a brook that ran between the batteries of the besiegers and the fort. From the moment that Monroe left his own works to appear in front of his enemies, his air had been grand, and his step and countenance highly military. The instant he caught a glimpse of the white plume that waved in the hat of Montcalm, his eye lighted. An age no longer appeared to possess any influence over his vast and still muscular person. "'Speak to the boys to be watchful, sir,' he said in an undertone to Duncan, "'and to look well to their flints and steel, for one is never safe with a servant of these Louis. At the same time we shall show them the front of men in deep security.' "'You'll understand me, Major Hayward.' He was interrupted by the clamor of a drum from the approaching Frenchman, which was immediately answered when each party pushed an orderly in advance, bearing a white flag, and the wary Scotsman halted with his guard close at his back. As soon as this slight salutation had passed, Montcalm moved toward them with a quick but graceful step, bearing his head to the veteran, and dropping his spotless plume, neatly to the earth in courtesy. If the air of Monroe was more commanding and manly, it wanted both the ease and insinuating polish of that of the Frenchman. Neither spoke for a few moments, each regarding the other with curious and interested eyes. Then, as became his superior rank and the nature of the interview, Montcalm broke the silence. After uttering the usual words of greeting, he turned to Duncan, and continued with a smile of recognition, speaking always in French. "'I am rejoiced, Monsieur, that you have given us the pleasure of your company on this occasion. There will be no necessity to employ an ordinary interpreter, 
for in your hands I feel the same security as if I spoke your language myself. Duncan acknowledged the compliment, when Montcalm, turning to his guard, which in imitation of that of their enemies, pressed close upon him, continued, And Henri, my savants, il faut child retirez before Major Hayward could imitate this proof of confidence, he glanced his eyes around the plain, and beheld with uneasiness the numerous dusky groups of savages, who looked out from the margin of the surrounding woods, curious spectators of the interview. Monsieur de Montcalm will readily acknowledge the difference in our situation, he said with some embarrassment, pointing at the same time toward those dangerous foes who were to be seen in almost every direction. Were we to dismiss our guard, we should stand here at the mercy of our enemies. Monsieur, you have the plighted faith of un gentle homme francais for your safety, returned Montcalm, laying his hand impressively on his heart. It should suffice. It shall fall back, Duncan added to the officer who led the escort. Fall back, sir, beyond hearing, and wait for orders. Munro witnessed this movement with manifest uneasiness, nor did he fail to demand an instant explanation. Is it not our interest, sir, to betray distrust? retorted Duncan. Monsieur de Montcalm pledges his word for our safety, and I have ordered the men to withdraw a little, in order to prove how much we depend on his assurance. It may be all right, sir, but I have no overwhelming reliance on the faith of these Marquesas, or Marquises as they tell themselves. Their patents of nobility are too common to be certain that they bear the seal of true honor. You forget, dear sir, that we confer with an officer, distinguished alike in Europe and America for his deeds. From a soldier of his reputation, we can have nothing to apprehend. The old man made a gesture of resignation, though his rigid features still betrayed his obstinate adherence to a distrust which he derived from a sort of hereditary contempt of his enemy, rather than from any present signs which might warrant so uncharitable a feeling. Montcalm waited patiently until this little dialogue in demi-voice was ended. When he drew nigher, and opened the subject of their conference. "'I have solicited this interview from your superior, Monsieur,' he said, "'because I believe he will allow himself to be persuaded that he has already done everything which is necessary for the honour of his prince, and will now listen to the admonitions of humanity. I will forever bear testimony that his resistance has been gallant.' and has continued as long as there was hope. When this opening was translated to Monroe, he answered with dignity, but with sufficient courtesy, However I may prize such testimony from Monsieur Montcalm, it will be more valuable when it shall be better merited. The French general smiled as Duncan gave him the purport of his reply and observed, What is so freely accorded to approve courage? may be refused to useless obstinacy. Monsieur would wish to see my camp, and witness for himself our numbers, and the impossibility of his resisting them with success. 
"'I know that the King of France is well served,' returned the unmoved Scotsman, as soon as Duncan ended his translation. "'But my own royal master has as many and as faithful troops.' "'Though not at hand, fortunately for us,' said Montcalm, without waiting in his ardor for the interpreter. "'There is destiny in war, to which a brave man knows how to submit, with the same courage that he faces his foes. Had I been conscious that Monsieur Montcalm was master of the English, I should have spared myself the trouble of so awkward a translation, said the vexed Duncan dryly, remembering instantly his recent by-play with Monroe. Your pardon, Monsieur, rejoined the Frenchman, suffering a slight color to appear in his dark cheek. There is a vast difference between understanding and speaking a foreign tongue. You will, therefore, please to assist me still? Then, after a short pause, he added, These hills afford us every opportunity of reconnoitering your works, messieurs, and I am possibly as well acquainted with their weak condition as you can be yourselves. Ask the French general if he has glasses to reach the Hudson, said Monroe proudly and if he knows when and where to expect the army of Webb. Let General Webb be his own interpreter, returned the politic Montcalm, suddenly extending an open letter toward Monroe as he spoke. You will there learn, Monsieur, that his movements are not likely to prove embarrassing to my army. The veteran seized the offered paper, without waiting for Duncan to translate the speech and with an eagerness that betrayed how important he deemed its contents. As his eyes passed hastily over the words, his countenance changed from its look of military pride to one of deep chagrin. His lip began to quiver, and suffering the paper to fall from his hand, his head dropped upon his chest, like that of a man whose hopes were withered in a single blow. Duncan caught the letter from the ground, and without apology for the liberty he took, he read at a glance its cruel purport. Their common superior, so far from encouraging them to resist, advised a speedy surrender, urging in the plainest language, as a reason, the utter impossibility of his sending a single man to their rescue. "'Here is no deception?' exclaimed Duncan, examining the billet both inside and out. This is the signature of Webb, and must be the captured letter. The man has betrayed me, Monroe at length bitterly exclaimed. He has brought dishonor to the door of one where disgrace has never before known to dwell, and shame has he reaped heavily on my gray hairs. Say not so, cried Duncan. We are yet masters of the fort, and of our honor. Let us then sell our lives at such a rate as shall make our enemies believe the purchase too dear. Boy, I thank thee, exclaimed the old man, rousing himself from his stupor. You have for once reminded Monroe of his duty. We will go back and dig our graves behind those ramparts. Messieurs, said Montcalm, advancing toward them a step in generous interest. You little know, Louis de Saint, 
Ferran, if you believe him capable of profiting by this letter to humble brave men, or to build up a dishonest reputation for himself, listen to my terms before you leave me. What sells the Frenchman? demanded the veteran sternly. Does he make a merit of having captured a scout with a note from headquarters? Sir, he had better raise this siege to go and sit before Edward, if he wishes to frighten his enemy with words. Duncan explained the other's meaning. Monsieur Mancon, we will hear you, the veteran added more calmly, as Duncan ended. To retain the fort is now impossible, said his liberal enemy. It is necessary, in the interest of my master, that it should be destroyed. But as for yourself and your brave comrades, there is no privilege, dear a soldier, that shall be denied. Our colors? demanded Hayward. Carry them to England, and show them to your king. Our arms? Keep them. None can use them better. Our march? The surrender of the place shall be done in a way most honorable to yourselves. Duncan now turned to explain these proposals to his commander, who heard them with amazement, and a sensibility that was deeply touched by so unusual and unexpected generosity. Go, you Duncan, he said, go with this Marquis, as indeed Marquis he should be. Go to his Marquis and arrange it all. I have lived to see two things in my old age that never did I expect to behold. An Englishman afraid to support a friend, and a Frenchman too honest to profit by his advantage. So saying, the veteran again dropped his head to his chest, and returned slowly toward the fort, exhibiting by the dejection of his heir to the anxious garrison a harbinger of evil tidings. From the shock of this unexpected blow, the haughty feelings of Monroe never recovered. But from that moment there commenced a change in his determined character, which accompanied him to a speedy grave. Duncan remained to settle the terms of the capitulation. He was seen to re-enter the works during the first watches of the night, and immediately, after a private conference with the commandant, to leave them again. It was then openly announced that hostilities must cease, Monroe having signed a treaty by which the place was to be yielded to the enemy with the morning, the garrison to retain their arms, the colors and their baggage, and consequently, according to military opinion, their honor. End of chapter 16 This reading by Gary W. Sherwin of Yukon, Pennsylvania, in the autumn of 2007. Chapter 17 of The Last of the Mohicans. A narrative of 1757 by James Fenimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 17. Quote, Weave the woof, the thread is spun, the web is wove, the work is done. Unquote. By Gray. The hostile armies which lay in the wilds of the Horican, 
passed the night of the ninth of August, 1757, much in the manner they would had they encountered on the fairest field of Europe, while the conquered were still, sullen, and dejected, the victors triumphed. But there are limits alike to grief and joy, and long before the watches of the morning came, the stillness of those boundless woods was only broken by a gay call from some exulting young Frenchman of the advanced pickets, or a menacing challenge from the fort, which sternly forbade the approach of any hostile footsteps before the stipulated moment. Even these occasional threatening sounds ceased to be heard in that dull hour which precedes the day, at which period a listener might have sought in vain any evidence of the presence of those armed powers that then slumbered on the shores of the holy lake. It was during these moments of deep silence that the canvas which concealed the entrance to a spacious marquee in the French encampment was shoved aside, and a man issued from beneath the drapery into the open air. He was enveloped in a cloak which might have been intended as a protection from the chilling damps of the woods, but which served equally well as a mantle to conceal his person. He was permitted to pass the grenadier, who watched over the slumbers of the French commander, without interruption, the man making the usual salute which betokens military deference, as the other passed swiftly through the little city of tents, in the direction of William Henry. Whenever this unknown individual encountered one of the numberless sentinels who crossed his path, his answer was prompt and, as it appeared, satisfactory, for he was uniformly allowed to proceed without further interrogation. With the exception of such repeated but brief interruptions, he had moved silently from the center of the camp to its most advanced outpost, when he drew nigh the soldier who held his watch nearest to the works of the enemy. As he approached, he was received with the usual challenge. Que vivez? Francais, was the reply. Le mot d'audre. Le victory, said the other, drawing so nigh as to be heard in a loud whisper. C'est bien, returned the sentinel, throwing his musket from the charge to his shoulder. Vos promenades bien mentit, monsieur. Il est nécessaire d'être vigilant, mon enfant, the other observed, dropping a fold of his cloak, and looking the soldier close in the face as he passed him, still continuing his way toward the British fortification. The man started. His arms rattled heavily as he threw them forward in the lowest and most respectful salute, and when he had again recovered his peace, he turned to walk his post, muttering between his teeth, Fantatrer vigilant in verite, je crois que nous avons la un corporal qui ne dort jamais. The officer proceeded without affecting to hear the words which escaped the sentinel in his surprise, nor did he again pause until he had reached the low strand and in a somewhat dangerous vicinity to the western water bastion of the fort. The light of an obscure moon was just sufficient to render objects, though dim, perceptible in their outlines. He therefore took the precaution to place himself against the trunk of a tree, where he leaned for many minutes, 
and seemed to contemplate the dark and silent mounds of the English works in profound attention. His gaze at the ramparts was not that of a curious or idle spectator, but his looks wandered from point to point, denoting his knowledge of military usages, and betraying that his search was not unaccompanied by distrust. At length he appeared satisfied, and having cast his eyes impatiently upward toward the summit of the eastern mountain, as if anticipating the approach of the morning, he was in the act of turning on his footsteps, when a light sound on the nearest angle of the bastion caught his ear, and induced him to remain. Just then a figure was seen to approach the edge of the rampart, where it stood, apparently contemplating in its turn the distant tents of the French encampment. Its head was then turned toward the east, as though equally anxious for the appearance of light, when the form leaned against the mound, and seemed to gaze upon the glassy expanse of the waters, which, like a submarine firmament, glittered with its thousand mimic stars. The melancholy air, the hour, together with the vast frame of the man who thus leaned, musing against the English ramparts, left no doubt as to his person in the mind of the observant spectator. Delicacy, no less than prudence, now urged him to retire, and he had moved cautiously round the body of the tree for that purpose, when another sound drew his attention, and once more arrested his footsteps. It was a low and almost inaudible movement of the water, and was succeeded by a grating of pebbles, one against the other. In a moment he saw a dark form rise, as it were, out of the lake, and steal without further noise to the land, within a few feet of the place where he himself stood. A rifle next slowly rose between his eyes and the watery mirror, but before it could be discharged his own hand was on the lock. <gasps> exclaimed the savage whose treacherous aim was so singularly and unexpectedly interrupted. Without making any reply, the French officer laid his hand on the shoulder of the Indian, and led him in profound silence to a distance from the spot, where their subsequent dialogue might have proved dangerous, and where it seemed that one of them, at least, sought a victim. Then, throwing open his cloak, so as to expose his uniform and the cross of St. Louis, which was suspended at his breast, Montcalm sternly demanded. "'What means this? Does my son not know that the hatchet is buried between the English and his Canadian father?' "'What can the Hurons do?' returned the savage, speaking also, though imperfectly, in the French language. "'Not a warrior has a scalp, and the pale faces make friends?' "'Oh, le Renaud subtil!' Methinks this is an excess of zeal for a friend, who was so late an enemy. How many suns have set since Le Renard struck the war-post of the English? Where is that sun? demanded the sullen savage. Behind the hill, and it is dark and cold, but when he comes again it will be bright and warm. Le Subtil is the son of his tribe. There have been clouds and many mountains between him and his nation. But now he shines, and it is a clear sky. The Renard has power with his people, I well know, said Montcalm, for yesterday 
he hunted for their scalps, and today they hear him at the council fire. Magwe is a great chief. Let him prove it by teaching his nation how to conduct themselves toward our new friends. Why did the chief of the Canadas bring this young man into the woods and fire his cannon at the earthen house? demanded the subtle Indian. To subdue it. My master owns the land, and your father was ordered to drive off these English squatters. They have consented to go, and now he calls them enemies no longer. Tis well Marqua took the hatchet to color it with blood. It is now bright. When it is red, it shall be buried. But Marqua is pledged not to sully the lilies of France. The enemies of the great king across the salt lake are his enemies. His friends, the friends of the Hurons. Friends? repeated the Indian in scorn. Let his father give Maqua a hand. Montcalm, who felt that his influence over the warlike tribes he had gathered was to be maintained by concession rather than by power, complied reluctantly with the other's request. The savage placed the fingers of the French commander on a deep scar in his bosom, and then exultantly demanded, Does my father know that? What warrior does not? Tis where a leaden bullet has cut. And this, continued the Indian, who had turned his naked back to the other, his body being without its usual calico mantle. This, my son, has been sadly injured here. Who has done this? Magua slept hard in the English wigwams, and the sticks have left their mark, returned the savage with a hollow laugh, which did not conceal the fierce temper which nearly choked him. Then, recollecting himself with a sullen and native dignity, he added, Go teach your young men it is peace. Le Renard Subtil knows how to speak to a Huron warrior. Without deigning to bestow further words, or to wait for any answer, the savage cast his rifle into the hollow of his arm, and moved silently through the encampment toward the woods where his own tribe was known to lie. Every few yards as he proceeded, he was challenged by the sentinels, but he stalked sullenly onward, utterly disregarding the summons of the soldiers, who only spared his life because they knew the air and tread no less than the obstinate daring of an Indian. Montcalm lingered long and melancholy on the stand where he had been left by his companion, brooding deeply on the temper which his ungovernable ally had just discovered. Already had his fair fame been tarnished by one horrid scene, and in circumstances fearfully resembling those under which he now found himself. As he mused, he became keenly sensible of the deep responsibility they assume who disregard the means to attain an end, and of all the danger of setting in motion an engine which exceeds human power to control. Then, shaking off a train of reflection, which he accounted a weakness in such a moment of triumph, he retraced his steps toward his tent, giving the order as he passed to make the signal that should arouse the army from its slumbers. The first tap of the French drums was echoed from the bosom of the fort, and presently the valley was filled with the strains of martial music, rising long, thrilling, and lively above the rattling accompaniment. The horns of the victors, 
sounded merry and cheerful flourishes until the last laggard of the camp was at his post. But the instant the British fifes had blown their shrill signal, they became mute. In the meantime the day had dawned, and when the line of the French army was ready to receive its general, the rays of a brilliant sun were glancing along the glittering array. Then that success, which was already so well known, was officially announced. The favored band who were selected to guard the gates of the fort were detailed, and defiled before their chief. The signal of their approach was given, and all the usual preparations for a change of masters were ordered and executed, directly under the guns of the contested works. A very different scene presented itself within the lines of the Anglo-American army. As soon as the warning signal was given, it exhibited all the signs of a hurried and forced departure. The sullen soldiers shouldered their empty tubes and fell into their places, like men whose blood had been heated by the past contest, and who only desired the opportunity to revenge an indignity which was still wounding to their pride concealed, as it was, under the observances of military etiquette. Women and children ran from place to place, some bearing the scanty remnants of their baggage, and others searching in the ranks for those countenances they looked up to for protection. Monroe appeared among his silent troops, firm but dejected. It was evident that the unexpected blow had struck deep into his heart, though he struggled to sustain his misfortune with the port of a man. Duncan was touched at the quiet and impressive exhibition of his grief. He had discharged his own duty, and he now pressed to the side of the old man to know in what particular he might serve him. "'My daughters,' was the brief but expressive reply. "'Good heavens! Are not arrangements already made for their convenience?' "'Today I am only a soldier, Major Hayward,' said the veteran. All that you see here, claim I like to be my children. Duncan had heard enough. Without losing one of those moments, which had now become so precious, he flew toward the quarters of Monroe in quest of the sisters. He found them on the threshold of the low edifice, already prepared to depart, and surrounded by a clamorous and weeping assemblage of their own sex, who had gathered about the place, with a sort of instinctive consciousness that it was the point most likely to be protected. Though the cheeks of Cora were pale, and her countenance anxious, she had lost none of her firmness. But the eyes of Alice were inflamed, and betrayed how long and bitterly she had wept. They both, however, received the young man with undisguised pleasure, the former, for a novelty, being the first to speak. The fort is lost, she said with a melancholy smile, though our good name, I trust, remains. Tis brighter than ever, but, dearest Miss Monroe, it is time to think less of others, and to make some provision for yourself. Military usage, pride, that pride on which you so much value yourself, demands that your father and I should for a little while continue with the troops. Then where to seek a proper protector for you, against the confusion and chances of such a scene? None is necessary, returned Cora. 
who would dare to injure or insult the daughter of such a father at a time like this i would not leave you alone continued the youth looking about him in a hurried manner for the command of the best regiment in the pay of the king remember our alice is not gifted with all your firmness and god only knows the terrors she might endure you may be right cora replied smiling again but far more sadly than before listen chance has already sent us a friend when he is most needed duncan did listen and on the instant comprehended her meaning the low and serious sounds of the sacred music so well known to the eastern provinces caught his ear and instantly drew him to an apartment in an adjacent building which had already been deserted by its customary tenants there he found david pouring out his pious feelings through the only medium in which he ever indulged duncan waited until by the cessation of the movement of the hand he believed the strain was ended when by touching his shoulder he drew the attention of the other to himself and in a few words explained his wishes even so replied the single-minded disciple of the king of israel when the young man had ended i have found much that is comely and melodious in the maidens and it is fitting that we who have consorted in so much peril should abide together in peace i will attend them when i have completed my morning praise to which nothing is now wanting but the doxology will thou bear a part friend the meter is common and the tune southwell then extending the little volume and giving the pitch of the air anew with considerate attention david then extending the little volume and giving the pitch of the air anew with considerate attention david recommenced and finished his strains with a fixedness of manner that is not easy to interrupt hayward was fain to wait until the verse was ended when seeing david relieving himself from the spectacles and replacing the book he continued it will be your duty to see that none dare approach the ladies with any rude intention or to offer insult or to taunt at the misfortune of their brave father in this task you will be seconded by the domestics of their household even so it is possible that the indians and stragglers of the enemy may intrude in which case you will remind them of the terms of the capitulation and threaten to report their conduct to montcalm a word will suffice if not i have that here which shall returned david exhibiting his book with an air in which meekness and confidence were singularly blended here are words which uttered or rather thundered with proper emphasis and in measured time shall quiet the most unruly temper why rage the heathen furiously enough said hayward interrupting the burst of his musical invocation we understand each other it is time that we should now assume our respective duties Camut cheerfully assented and together they sought the females cora received her new and somewhat extraordinary protector courteously at least and even the pallid features of alice lighted again with some of their native archness as she thanked hayward for his care 
Duncan took occasion to assure them he had done the best that circumstances permitted, and, as he believed, quite enough for the security of their feelings. Of danger there was none. He then spoke gladly of his intention to rejoin them the moment he had led the advance a few miles toward the Hudson, and immediately took his leave. By this time the signal for departure had been given, and the head of the English column was in motion. The sisters started at the sound, and glancing their eyes around, they saw the white uniforms of the French grenadiers, who had already taken possession of the gates of the fort. At that moment an enormous cloud seemed to pass suddenly above their heads, and looking upward they discovered they stood beneath the wide folds of the standard of France. "'Let us go,' said Cora. "'This is no longer a fit place for the children of an English officer.' Alice clung to the arm of her sister, and together they left the parade, accompanied by the moving throng that surrounded them. As they passed the gates, the French officers who had learned their rank bowed often and low, forbearing, however, to intrude those attentions, which they saw with peculiar tact, might not be agreeable. As every vehicle and each beast of burden was occupied by the sick and wounded, Cora had decided to endure the fatigues of a foot-march, rather than interfere with their comforts. Indeed, many a maimed and feeble soldier was compelled to drag his exhausted limbs in the rear of the columns, for the want of the necessary means of conveyance in that wilderness. The whole, however, was in motion, the weak and wounded groaning and in suffering, their comrades silent and sullen, and the woman and children in terror, they knew not of what. As the confused and timid throng left the protecting mounds of the fort, and issued on the open plain, the whole scene was at once presented to their eyes. At a little distance on the right, and somewhat in the rear, the French army stood to their arms. Montcalm having collected his party so soon as his guard had possession of the works, they were attentive but silent observers of the proceedings of the vanquished, failing in none of the stipulated military honors, and offering no taunt or insult in their success to the less fortunate foes. Living masses of the English, to the amount in the whole of near three thousand, were moving slowly across the plain, toward the common center, and gradually approached each other, as they converged to the point of their march, a vista cut through the lofty trees where the road to the Hudson entered the forest. Along the sweeping borders of the woods hung a dark cloud of savages, eyeing the passage of their enemies, and hovering at a distance like vultures, who are only kept from swooping on their prey by the presence and restraint of a superior army. A few had straggled among the conquered columns, where they stalked in sullen discontent, attentive though, as yet, passive observers of the moving multitude. The advance, with Hayward at its head, had already reached the defile, and was slowly disappearing when the attention of Cora was drawn to a collection of stragglers by the sounds of contention. A truant provincial was paying the forfeit of his disobedience, by being plundered of those very effects which had caused him to desert his place in the ranks. The man was of powerful frame, 
and too avaricious to part with his goods without a struggle. Individuals from either party interfered, the one side to prevent, and the other to aid in the robbery. Voices grew loud and angry, and a hundred savages appeared, as it were, by magic, where a dozen only had been seen a minute before. It was then that Corus saw the form of Magua, gliding among his countrymen, and speaking with his fatal and artful eloquence. The mass of women and children stopped, and hovered together like alarmed and fluttering birds. But the cupidity of the Indian was soon gratified, and the different bodies again moved slowly onward. The savages now fell back, and seemed content to let their enemies advance, without further molestation. But as the female crowd approached them, the gaudy colors of a shawl attracted the eyes of a wild and untutored Huron. He advanced to seize it without the least hesitation. The woman, more in terror than through love of the ornament, wrapped her child in the coveted article, and folded both more closely to her bosom. Cora was in the act of speaking, with an intent to advise the woman to abandon the trifle, when the savage relinquished his hold on the shawl, and tore the screaming infant from her arms. Abandoning everything to the greedy grasp of those around her, the mother darted, with distraction of her mien, to reclaim her child. The Indian smiled grimly, and extended one hand in sign of a willingness to exchange, while with the other he flourished the babe over his head, holding it by the feet, as if to enhance the value of the ransom. "'Here, here, there, oh, any, everything!' exclaimed the breathless woman, tearing the lighter articles of dress from her person, with ill-directed and trembling fingers. "'Take all, but give me my babe!' The savage spurned the worthless rags, and perceiving that the shawl had already become a prize to another, his bantering but sullen smile, changing to a gleam of ferocity, he dashed the head of the infant against a rock and cast its quivering remains to our very feet. For an instant the mother stood, like a statue of despair, looking wildly down at the unseemly object which had so lately nestled in her bosom and smiled in her face. And then she raised her eyes and countenance toward heaven, as if calling on God to curse the perpetrator of the foul deed. She was spared the sin of such a prayer, for maddened at his disappointment, and excited at the sight of blood, the Huron mercifully drove his tomahawk into her own brain. The mother sank under the blow and fell, grasping at her child in death, with the same engrossing love that had caused her to cherish it when living. At that dangerous moment Mokwa placed his hands to his mouth and raised the fatal and appalling hoop. The scattered Indians started at the well-known cry, as coursers bound at the signal to quit the goal, and directly there arose such a yell along the plain and through the arches of the wood as seldom burst from human lips before. They who heard it listened with a curdling horror at the heart, little inferior to that dread which may be expected to attend, the blast of the final summons. More than two thousand raving savages broke from the forest at the signal, and threw themselves across the fatal plain with instinctive alacrity. We shall not dwell on the revolting horrors that succeeded. Death was everywhere, and in his most terrific and disgusting aspects. 
resistance only seemed to inflame the murderers, who inflicted their furious blows long after their victims were beyond the power of their resentment. The flow of blood might be likened to the outbreaking of a torrent, and as the natives became heated and maddened by the sight, many among them even kneeled to the earth and drank freely, exultingly, hellishly of the crimson tide. The trained bodies of the troops threw themselves quickly into solid masses, endeavoring to awe their assailants by the imposing appearance of a military front. The experiment in some measure succeeded, though far too many suffered their unloaded muskets to be torn from their hands in the vain hope of appeasing the savages. In such a scene none had leisure to note the fleeting moments. It might have been ten minutes. It seemed an age that the sisters had stood riveted to one spot, horror-stricken and nearly hopeless. When the first blow was struck, their screaming companions had pressed upon them in a body, rendering flight impossible. And now that fear of death had scattered most, if not all, from around them, they saw no avenue open but such as conducted to the tomahawks of their foes. On every side arose shrieks, groans, exhortations, and curses. At this moment Alice caught a glimpse of the vast form of her father moving rapidly across the plain in the direction of the French army. He was in truth proceeding to Montcalm, fearless of any danger, to claim the tardy escort for which he had before conditioned. Fifty glittering axes and barbed spears were offered unheeded at his life but the savages respected his rank and calmness, even in their fury. The dangerous weapons were brushed aside by the still nervous arm of the veteran, or fell of themselves after menacing an act that it would seem no one had courage to perform. Fortunately, the vindictive Mockel was searching for his victim in the very band the veteran had just quitted. "'Father! Father! We are here!' shrieked Alice as he passed at no great distance without appearing to heed them. "'Come to us, father, or we die!' The cry was repeated, and in terms and tones that might have melted a heart of stone. But it was unanswered. Once, indeed, the old man appeared to catch the sound, for he paused and listened. But Alice had dropped senseless on the earth, and Cora had sunk at her side, hovering in untiring tenderness over her lifeless form. Monroe shook his head in disappointment, and proceeded, bent on the high duty of his station. "'Lady,' said Gamut, who, helpless and useless as he was, had not yet dreamed of deserting his trust, "'it is the jubilee of the devils, and this is not a meet place for Christians to tarry in. Let us up and fly!' "'Go!' said Cora, still gazing at her unconscious sister. "'Save thyself! To me thou canst not be of further use!' David comprehended the unyielding character of her resolution by the single but expressive gesture that accompanied her words. He gazed for a moment at the dusky forms that were acting their hellish rites on every side of him, and his tall person grew more erect while his chest heaved and every feature swelled and seemed to speak with the power of the feelings by which he was governed. If the Jewish boy might tame the spirit of soul by the sound of his harp and the words of sacred song, it may not be amiss, he said, to try the potency of music here. Then, raising his voice to its highest tone, 
he poured out a strain so powerful as to be heard even amid the din of that bloody field. More than one savage rushed toward them, thinking to rifle the unprotected sisters of their attire and bear away their scalps. But when they found this strange and unmoved figure riveted to his post, they paused to listen. Astonishment soon changed to admiration, and they passed on to other and less courageous victims, openly expressing their satisfaction at the firmness with which the white warrior sang his death song. Encouraged and deluded by his success, David exerted all his power to extend what he believed so holy an influence. The unwanted sounds caught the ears of a distant savage, who flew raging from group to group like one who, scorning to touch the vulgar herd, hunted for some victim more worthy of his renown. It was Magua who uttered a yell of pleasure when he beheld his ancient prisoners again at his mercy. "'Come!' he said, laying his soiled hands on the dress of Cora. "'The wigwam of the Huron is still open!' Is it not better than this place? Away! cried Cora, veiling her eyes from his revolting aspect. The Indian laughed tauntingly as he held up his reeking hand and answered, It is red, but it comes from white veins. Monster! There is blood, oceans of blood upon thy soul. Thy spirit has moved this scene. Magua is a great chief, returned the exulting savage. Will the hair go to his tribe? Never! Strike if thou wilt, and complete thy revenge! He hesitated a moment, and then catching the light and senseless form of Alice in his arms, the subtle Indian moved swiftly across the plain toward the woods. Hold! shrieked Cora, following wildly in on his footsteps. Release the child wretch! What is it you do? But Makwa was deaf to her voice, or rather, he knew his power, and was determined to maintain it. Stay, lady, stay! called Gamut after the unconscious Cora. The holy charm is beginning to be felt, and soon shall thou see this horrid tumult stilled. Perceiving that, in his turn, he was unheeded, the faithful David followed the distracted sister, raising his voice again in sacred song, and sweeping the air to measure with his long arm, in diligent accompaniment. In this manner they traversed the plain through the flying and wounded of the dead. The fierce Huron was at any time sufficient for himself, and the victim that he bore, though Cora would have fallen more than once under the blows of her savage enemies, but for the extraordinary being who stalked in her rear and who now appeared to the astonished natives, gifted with the protected spirit of madness. Makwa, who knew how to avoid the more pressing dangers, and also to elude pursuit, entered the woods through a low ravine, where he quickly found the Narragansetts, which the travelers had abandoned so shortly before, awaiting his appearance in custody of a savage as fierce and malign in expression as himself. Laying Alice on one of the horses, he made a sign to Cora to mount the other. Notwithstanding the horror excited by the presence of her captor, there was a present relief of escaping from the bloody scene enacting on the plain, to which Cora could not be altogether insensible. She took her seat and held forth her arms for her sister, with an air of entreaty and love that even the Huron could not deny. 
placing Alice then on the same animal with Cora, he seized the bridle, and commenced his route by plunging deeper into the forest. David, perceiving that he was left alone, utterly disregarded as a subject too worthless even to destroy, threw his long limb across the saddle of the beast they had deserted, and made such progress in the pursuit as the difficulty of the path permitted. They soon began to ascend, but as the motion had a tendency to revive the dormant faculties of her sister, the attention of Cora was too much divided between the tenderest solicitude in her behalf, and in listening to the cries which were still too audible on the plain, to note the direction which they journeyed. When, however, they gained the flattened surface of the mountain-top, and approached the eastern precipice, she recognized the spot to which she had once before been led under the more friendly auspices of the scout. Here Mokwa suffered them to dismount, and notwithstanding their own captivity, the curiosity which seems inseparable from horror, induced them to gaze at the sickening sight below. The cruel work was still unchecked. On every side the captured were flying before their relentless persecutors while the armed columns of the Christian king stood afast in an apathy which has never been explained, and which has left an immovable blot on the otherwise fair excutcheon of their leader. Nor was the sword of death stayed until cupidity got the mastery of revenge. Then, indeed, the shrieks of the wounded and the yells of their murderers grew less frequent, until finally the cries of horror were lost to their ear, or were drowned in the loud, long, and piercing hoops of the triumphant savages. End of chapter 17 This reading by Gary W. Sherwin of Yukon, Pennsylvania, in the autumn of 2007. Chapter 18 of The Last of the Mohicans, a narrative of 1757, by James Fenimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 18 Quote, Why anything? An honorable murderer, if you will. For not I did in hate, but all in honor. Unquote from Othello. The bloody and inhuman scene, rather incidentally mentioned than described in the preceding chapter, is conspicuous in the pages of colonial history by the merited title of The Massacre of William Henry. It so far deepened the stain which a previous and very similar event had left upon the reputation of the French commander that it was not entirely erased by his early and glorious death. It is now becoming obscured by time, and thousands who know that Mount Calm died like a hero on the plains of Abraham have yet to learn how much he was deficient in that moral courage without which no man can be truly great. Pages might yet be written to prove from his illustrious example the defects of human excellence, to show how easy it is for generous sentiments, high courtesy, and chivalrous courage to lose their influence beneath the chilling blight of selfishness, and to exhibit to the world a man who was great in all the minor attributes of character, but who was found wanting 
when it became necessary to prove how much principle is superior to policy. But the task would exceed our prerogatives, and, as history like love is so apt to surround her heroes with an atmosphere of imaginary brightness, it is probable that Louis de saint Véran will be viewed by posterity only as the gallant defender of his country, while his cruel apathy on the shores of the Oswego and of the Horican will be forgotten. Deeply regretting this weakness on the part of a sister muse, we shall at once retire from her sacred precincts within the proper limits of our own humble vocation. The third day from the capture of the fort was drawing to a close, but the busyness of the narrative must still detain the reader on the shores of the holy lake. When last seen, the environs of the works were filled with violence and uproar. They were now possessed by stillness and death. The blood-stained conquerors had departed, and their camp, which had so lately rung with the merry rejoicings of a victorious army, lay a silent and deserted city of huts. The fortress was a smoldering ruin. Charred rafters, fragments of exploded artillery, and rent mason-work, covering its earthen mounds in confused disorder. A frightful change had also occurred in the season. The sun had hid its warmth behind an impenetrable mass of vapor, and hundreds of human forms, which had blackened beneath the fierce heats of August, were stiffening in their deformity before the blast of a premature November. The curling and spotless mist, which had been sailing above the hills toward the north, were now returning to an interminable dusky sheet, which was urged along by the fury of a tempest. The crowded mirror of the hurricane was gone, and in its place the green and angry waters lashed the shores, as if indignantly casting back its impurities to the polluted strand. Still, the clear fountain retained a portion of its charmed influence, but it reflected only the somber gloom that fell from the impending heavens. That humid and congenial atmosphere which commonly adorned the view, veiling its harshness, and softening its asperities had disappeared. The northern air poured across the waste of water so harsh and unmingled that nothing was left to be conjectured by the eye. The fiercer element had cropped the vendure of the plain, which looked as though it were scathed by consuming lightning. But here and there a dark green tuft arose in the midst of the desolation, the earliest fruits of a soil that had been fattened with human blood. The whole landscape, which seen by a favoring light and in a genial temperature, had been so lovely, appeared now like some pictured allegory of life, in which objects were arrayed in their harshest but truest colors, and without the relief of any shadowing. The solitary and arid blades of grass arose from the passing gust, fearfully perceptible. The bold and rocky mountains were too distinct in their barrenness and the eye even sought relief in vain by attempting to pierce the illimitable void of heaven, which was shut to its gaze by the dusky sheet of ragged and driving vapor. The wind blew unequally, sometimes sweeping heavily along the ground, seeming to whisper its moanings in the cold ears of the dead, then rising in a shrill and mournful whistling 
it entered the forest with a rush that filled the air with the leaves and branches it scattered in its path. Amid the unnatural shower, a few hungry ravens struggled with the gale. But no sooner was the green ocean of woods which stretched beneath them passed, than they gladly stopped, at random, to their hideous bank. In short, it was a scene of wildness and desolation, and it appeared as if all who had profanely entered it had been stricken, at a blow, by the relentless arm of death. But the prohibition had ceased, and for the first time since the perpetrators of those foul deeds which had assisted to disfigure the scene were gone, living human beings had now presumed to approach the place. About an hour before the setting of the sun, on the day already mentioned, the forms of five men might have been seen issuing from the narrow vista of trees, where the path through the Hudson entered the forest, and advancing in the direction of the ruined works. At first their progress was slow and guarded, as though they entered with reluctance amid the horrors of the post, or dreaded the renewal of its frightful incidents. A light figure preceded the rest of the party, with the caution and activity of a native, ascending every hillock to reconnoitre, and indicating by gestures to his companions the route he deemed it most prudent to pursue. Nor were those in the rear wanting in every caution and foresight known to forest warfare. One among them, he also was an Indian, moved a little on one flank, and watched the margin of the woods with eyes long accustomed to read the smallest sign of danger. The remaining three were white, though clad in vestments adapted both in quality and color to their present hazardous pursuit, that of hanging on the skirts of a retiring army in the wilderness. The effects produced by the appalling sights that constantly arose in their path to the lake shore were as different as the characters of the respective individuals who composed the party. The youth in front through serious but furtive glances at the mangled victims, as he stepped lightly across the plain, afraid to exhibit his feelings, and yet too inexperienced to quell entirely their sudden and powerful influence. His red associate, however, was superior to such a weakness. He passed the groups of dead with a steadiness of purpose, and an eye so calm that nothing but long and inveterate practice could enable him to maintain. The sensations produced in the minds of even the white men were different, though uniformly sorrowful. One, whose gray locks and furrowed lineaments, blending with a martial air and tread, betrayed in spite of the disguise of a woodsman's dress a man long experienced in scenes of war, was not ashamed to groan aloud whenever a spectacle of more than usual horror came under his view. The young man at his elbow shuddered, but seemed to suppress his feelings in tenderness to his companion. Of them all, the straggler who brought up the rear appeared alone to betray his real thoughts, without fear of observation or dread of consequences. He gazed on the most appalling sight, with eyes and muscles, that knew not how to waver, but with execrations so bitter and deep as to denote how much he denounced the crime of his enemies. The reader will perceive at once in these respective characters, the Mohicans and their white friend, the scout, 
together with Monroe and Hayward. It was, in truth, the father in quest of his children, attended by the youth who felt so deep a stake in their happiness, and those brave and trusty foresters who had already proved their skill and fidelity through the trying scenes related. When Uncas, who moved in front, had reached the center of the plain, he raised a cry that drew his companions in a body to the spot. The young warrior had halted over a group of females who lay in a cluster, a confused mass of dead. Notwithstanding the revolting horror of the exhibition, Monroe and Hayward flew toward the festering heap, endeavoring, with a love that no uneasiness could extinguish, to discover whether any vestiges of those they sought were to be seen among the tattered and many-colored garments. The father and the lover found instant relief in the search, though each was condemned again to experience the misery of an uncertainty that was hardly less insupportable than the most revolting truth. They were standing silent and thoughtful around the melancholy pile when the scout approached, eyeing the sad spectacle with an angry countenance, the sturdy woodsman, for the first time since his entering the plain, spoke intelligibly and aloud. I have been on many a shocking field, and have followed a trail of blood for weary miles, he said. But never have I found the hand of the devil so plain as it is here to be seen. Revenge is an Indian feeling, and all who know me know that there is no cross in my veins. But this much will I say here, in the face of heaven, and with the power of the Lord so manifest in this howling wilderness, that should these Frenchers ever trust themselves again within the rage of a ragged bullet, there is one rifle which shall play its part so long as flint will fire or powder burn. I leave the tomahawk and knife to such as have a natural gift to use them. What say you, Chingachgook? he added in Delaware. Shall the Hurons boast of this to their women when the deep snows come? A gleam of resentment flashed across the dark lineaments of the Mohican chief. He loosened his knife in his sheath, and then, turning calmly from the sight, his countenance settled into a repose as deep as if he knew the instigation of passion. Montcalm, Montcalm, continued the deeply resentful and less self-restrained scout. They say a time must come when all the deeds done in the flesh will be seen at a single look, and that by eyes cleared from mortal infirmities. Woe betide the wretch who is born to behold this plain, with the judgment hanging about his soul. Has, I am a man of white blood, Yonder lies a redskin without the hair of his head, where nature rooted it. Look to him, Delaware. It may be one of your missing people, and he should have burial like a stout warrior. I see it in your eye, Sagamore. A Huron pays for this, afore the fall winds have blown away the scent of the blood. Chingachgook approached the mutilated form, and turning it over, he found the distinguishing marks of one of those six allied tribes, or nations as they were called, who, while they fought in the English ranks, were so deadly hostile to his own people. Spurning the loathsome object with his foot, he turned from it with the same difference he would have quitted a brute carcass. The scout comprehended the action, and very deliberately pursued his own way, continuing, however, 
his denunciations against the French commander, in the same resentful strain. "'Nothing but vast wisdom and unlimited power should dare to sweep off men in multitudes,' he added. "'For it is only the one that can know the necessity of the judgment, and what is there short of the other that can replace the creatures of the Lord. I hold it a sin to kill the second buck before the first is eaten, unless a march in front or an ambushment be contemplated. It is a different matter for a few warriors in open and rugged fight, for tis their gift to die with the rifle or the tomahawk in hand, according as their natures may happen to be red or white. Uncas, come this way, lad, and let the raven settle upon the mingo. I know, from often seeing it, that they are craving for the flesh of an anida, and it is well to let the bird follow the gift of its natural appetite. Huh! exclaimed the young Mohican, rising on the extremities of his feet and gazing intently in his front, frightening the ravens to some other prey by the sound of the action. "'What is it, boy?' whispered the scout, lowering his tall form into a crouching attitude, like a panther about to take his leap. "'God send it be a tardy Frencher sulking for plunder. I do believe Kildeer would have uncommon range to-day.' Uncas, without making any reply, bounded away from the spot, and in the next instant he was seen tearing from a bush and waving in triumph a fragment from the green riding veil of Cora. The movement, the exhibition, and the cry which again burst from the lips of the young Mohican instantly drew the whole party about him. "'My child!' said Monroe, speaking quickly and wildly. "'Give me my child! Uncas will try!' was the short and touching answer. The simple but meaning assurance was lost on the father, who seized the piece of gauze, and crushed it in his hand while his eyes roamed fearfully among the bushes, as if he equally dreaded and hoped for the secrets they might reveal. "'Here are no dead,' said Hayward. "'The storm seems not to have passed this way.' "'That's manifest and clearer than the heavens above our heads,' returned the undisturbed scout. "'But either she or they that have robbed her have passed the bush, for I remember the rag she wore to hide a face that all did love to look upon.' Uncas, you are right. The wood. None who could fly would remain to be murdered. Let us search for the mark she left. For, to Indian eyes, I sometimes think a hummingbird leaves his trail in the air. The young Mohican darted away at the suggestion, and the scout had hardly done speaking before the former raised a cry of success from the margin of the forest. On reaching the spot, the anxious party perceived another portion of the veil fluttering on the lower branch of a beech. "'Softly, softly,' said the scout, extending his long rifle in front of the eager Hayward. "'We know now our work, but the beauty of the trail must not be deformed. A step too soon may give us hours of trouble. We have them, though. That much is beyond denial.' "'Bless ye, bless ye, worthy man!' exclaimed Monroe. "'Whither, then, have they fled?' And where are my babes? The path they have taken depends on many chances. If they have gone alone, they are quite as likely to move in a circle as straight, and they may be within a dozen miles of us. But if the Hurons or any of the French Indians have laid hands on them, 
"'Tis probably they are now near the borders of the Canadas. "'But what matters that?' continued the deliberate scout, "'observing the powerful anxiety and disappointment the listeners exhibited. "'Here are the Mohicans, and I on one end of the trail. "'And rely on it. "'We find the other, though they should be a hundred leagues asunder. "'Gently, gently, Uncas. "'You are as impatient as a man in the settlements.' "'You forget that light feet leave but faint marks.' "'Oh!' exclaimed Chinchachkuk, who had been occupied in examining an opening that had been evidently made through the low underbrush which skirted the forest, and who now stood erect as he pointed downward in the attitude, with an air of a man who beheld a disgusting serpent. "'Here is the palpable impression of the footstep of a man,' cried Hayward, bending over the indicated spot. He is trod in the margin of this pool, and the mark cannot be mistaken. They are captives. Better so than left to starve in the wilderness, returned the scout. And they will leave a wider trail. I would wager fifty beaver skins against as many flints that the Mohicans and I enter their wigwams within the month. Stoop to it, Uncas, and try what you can make of the moccasin, for moccasin it plainly is, and no shoe. The young Mohican bent over the track, and removing the scattered leaves from around the place, he examined it with much of that sort of scrutiny that a money-dealer in these days of pecuniary doubts would bestow on a suspected due bill. At length he arose from his knees, satisfied with the result of the examination. "'Well, boy,' demanded the attentive scout, "'what does it say?' Can you make anything of the tell-tale? Le Renard Subtil. Ha! That rampaging devil again. There will never be an end of his loping till Kildeer has said a friendly word to him. Hayward reluctantly admitted the truth of this intelligence, and now expressed rather his hopes than his doubts by saying, One moccasin is so much like another. It is probable there is some mistake. One moccasin like another? You may as well say that one foot is like another, though we all know that some are long and others short, some broad and others narrow, some with high and some with low insteps, some in-toed and some out. One moccasin is no more like another than one book is like another, though they who can read in one are seldom able to tell the marks of the other, which is all ordered for the best giving to every man his natural advantages. Let me go down to it, Uncas. Neither book nor moccasin is the worse for having two opinions instead of one. The scout stooped to the task and instantly added, You are right, boy. Here is the patch we saw so often in the other chase. And the fellow will drink when he can get an opportunity. Your drinking Indian always learns to walk with a wider toe than the natural savage, it being the gift of a drunkard to straddle, whether of white or red skin. "'Tis just the length and bread, too. Look at it, Sagamore. You measured the prints more than once when we hunted the varmints from the glens to the health springs. Chingachgook complied, and after finishing his short examination, he arose, and with a quiet demeanor, he merely pronounced the word, Makwa. Aye, tis a settled thing. Here, then, have passed the dark hair and Makwa. "'And not Alice?' demanded Hayward. "'Of her 
"'We have not yet seen the signs,' returned the scout, looking closely around the trees, the bushes, and the ground. "'What have we there? Uncas, bring hither the thing you see dangling from yonder thorn-bush.' When the Indian had complied, the scout received the prize, and holding it on high, he laughed in his silent but heartfelt manner. "'Tis the tooting weapon of the singer. Now we shall have a trail a priest might travel,' he said. Uncas, look for the marks of a shoe that is long enough to uphold six feet two of tottering human flesh. I begin to have some hopes of the fellow since he has given up squalling to follow some better trade. At least he has been faithful to his trust, said Hayward, and Cora and Alice are not without a friend. Yes, said Hawkeye, dropping his rifle, and leaning on it with an air of visible contempt. He will do their singing. Can he slay a buck for their dinner? Journey by the moss on the beaches? Or cut the throat of a Huron? If not, the first catbird he meets is the cleverer of the two. Footnote. The powers of the American mockingbird are generally known, but the true mockingbird is not found so far north as the state of New York, where it has, however, two substitutes of inferior excellence. The catbird so often named by the scout, and the bird vulgarly called ground-thresher. Either of these last two birds is superior to the nightingale or the lark, though in general the American birds are less musical than those of Europe. End footnote. Well, boy, any signs of such a foundation? Here is something like the footstep of one who has worn a shoe. Can that be our friend? Touch the leaves lightly, or you'll disconcert the formation. That, that is the print of a foot. But tis the dark hairs, and small it is, too. For one of such a noble height and grand appearance, the singer would cover it with his heel. But where, let me look on the footsteps of my child said Monroe, shoving the bushes aside and bending fondly over the nearly obliterated impression. Though the tread which had left the mark had been light and rapid, it was still plainly visible. The aged soldier examined it with eyes that grew dim as he gazed, nor did he rise from his stooping posture till Hayward saw that he had watered the trace of his daughter's passage with a scalding tear. Willing to divert a distress which threatened each moment to break through the restraint of appearances, by giving the veteran something to do, the young man said to the scout, As we now possess these infallible signs, let us commence our march. A moment at such a time will appear an age to the captives. It is not the swiftest leaping deer that gives the longest chase, returned Hawkeye, without moving his eye from the different marks that had come under his view. We know that the rampaging Huron has passed and the dark hair and the singer. But where is she of the yellow locks and blue eyes? Though little and far from being as bold as her sister, she is fair to the view, and pleasant in discourse. Has she no friend that none care for her? God forbid she should ever want hundreds. Are we not now in their pursuit? For one, I will never cease the search till she be found. In that case... We may have to journey by different paths, for here she has not passed, light and little, as her footsteps would be. Hayward drew back, all his ardor to proceed seeming to vanish on the instant. Without attending to this sudden change in the other's humor, 
the scout, after musing a moment, continued, "'There is no woman in this wilderness could leave such a print as that but the dark hair or her sister. We know that the first has been here. But where are the signs of the other? Let us push deeper on the trail, and if nothing offers, we must go back to the plain and strike another scent. Move on, Uncas, and keep your eyes on the dried leaves. I will watch the bushes, while your father shall run with a low nose to the ground. Move on, friends. The sun is getting behind the hills. Is there nothing that I can do? demanded the anxious Hayward. You? repeated the scout, who with his red friends was already advancing in the order he had prescribed. Yes, you can keep in our rear, and be careful not to cross the trail. Before they had proceeded many rods, the Indians stopped and appeared to gaze at some signs on the earth with more than their usual keenness. Both father and son spoke quick and loud, now looking at the object of their mutual admiration, and now regarding each other with the most unequivocal pleasure. "'They have found the little foot!' exclaimed the scout, moving forward without attending further to his own portion of the duty. "'What have we here?' An ambush has been planted in the spot. No, by the truest rifle of the frontiers, here have been them one-sided horses again. Now the whole secret is out, and all is plain as the North Star at midnight. Yes, here they have mounted. There the beasts have been bound to a sapling in waiting, and yonder runs the broad path away to the north, in full sweep for the Canadas. But still there are no signs of Alice. "'Of the younger Miss Moreau,' said Duncan. "'Unless the shining bauble of Uncas "'has just lifted from the ground should prove one. "'Pass it this way, lad, that we may look at it.' "'Hayward instantly knew it for a trinket "'that Alice was fond of wearing, "'and which he recollected with the tenacious memory of a lover "'to have seen on the fatal morning of the massacre, "'dangling from the fair neck of his mistress. "'He seized the highly prized jewel, "'and as he proclaimed the fact, it vanished from the eyes of the wandering scout, who in vain looked for it on the ground, long after it was warmly pressed against the beating heart of Duncan. "'Pshaw!' said the disappointed Hawkeye, ceasing to rake the leaves with the breech of his rifle. "'Tis a sign of age when the sight begins to weaken. Such a glittering gigaw, and not to be seen. Well, well, I can squint along a clouded barrel yet, and that is enough to settle all disputes between me and the Mingos. I should like to find the thing, too, if it were only to carry it to the right owner, and that would be bringing the two ends of what I call a long trail together. For by this time the broad St. Lawrence, or perhaps the Great Lakes themselves, are between us. So much the more reason why we should not delay our march, returned Hayward. Let us proceed. Young blood and hot blood, they say, are much the same thing. We are not about to start on a squirrel hunt, or to drive a deer into the hurricane, but to outlie for days and nights, and to stretch across a wilderness, where the feet of men seldom go, and where no bookish knowledge would carry you through harmless. An Indian never starts on such an exhibition without smoking over his council fire, and, though a man of white blood, I honor their customs in this particular, seeing that they are deliberate and wise. We will therefore go back and light our fire tonight in the ruins of the old fort, and in the morning we shall be fresh and ready to undertake our work like men, 
and not like babbling women or eager boys. Hayward saw by the manner of the scout that altercation would be useless. Monroe had again sunk into that sort of apathy which had beset him since his late overwhelming misfortunes, and from which he was apparently to be roused only by some new and powerful excitement. Making a merit of necessity, the young man took the veteran by the arm and followed in the footsteps of the Indians and the scout, who had already begun to retrace the path which conducted them to the plain. End of chapter 18 This reading by Gary W. Sherwin of Yukon, Pennsylvania in the autumn of 2007. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.